Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. We're going to start off the show thanking our Patreon contributors for the week. Thank you guys so much for the support. This week we had Nadia, Elizabeth, Lucia, Veronica, Rochelle, Tara, Kay, Jeff, Leslie, Kelly, Jason, Fenella, we had BW, Cedra, Angelique, and Joshua just upped his pledge. Thank you guys. Thank you guys so much. So I guess we have to start with our recap of Versace. Yeah, I just um, watched it, so it's very fresh in my mind. Um, I just got an out reply from uh, my friend and one of our listeners, Frederick, and he was like, ugh, did you watch Versace? And I was like, are we talking about the same episode? Because I actually really like this episode. I liked this episode too, and I do feel like, oh, I wish they did it in order. I, I feel like I'll never right. accept the fact that they did it in reverse order. Yeah, and we talk, we say yeah. that every single week. But this episode even showed it more. Like I was thinking that too, because I really actually, um, it's funny because um, when Frederick said he, I'm assuming that this was the episode he didn't like. I was like, oh, really? Like, because I actually like this episode. Right. I thought it really showed a good window into sort of the, the catalyst for Andrew Cunanan developing this sense of entitlement, entitlement and sociopathy and um, pathological liarness. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's fine. It's fine. No, I mean, his father fucked him up. Big time. I don't know oh, if yeah. he was born predisposed to anything, but just watching what happened to him, I feel like. Also, was were they like hinting that he was molested by his father? You know, that was another one of those sketch, like like the aid, like the HIV with Versace. Right. It's kind of hinted at, but never really. I looked it up because I thought that that was the direction they were going to go in when right. the, there's a scene where they are moving into this really nice new house and the father leads a 10 year old Andrew Cunanan up to the master bedroom. And it's sort of implied that, Oh, this looks kind of like molesty, like something right. Molesty is going to happen right now, but it didn't happen. But they did, um, they did showcase the closeness that, it was a they new, had regardless of the molestation. It was a weird close. It was a weird relationship that they had, which was true and was confirmed because I did do so, a little bit of digging after I watched the episode right. to see what was true and what wasn't. I read this Vanity Fair article that did confirm that um, what Modesto Cunanan—that's the father's name—that he did favor Andrew over the other children. Oh gosh, that's right. Modesto. I was laughing because I remember when I did the Versace episode, <laughs> I thought he was from Modesto, but right. that was his father's name. No, that's his name. <laughs> yeah. And the actor um, who played him uh, was fantastic. Oh I yeah, thought. the dad was a good. He did such. A I good feel job. like both the parents are really well cast and good oh. actors. Oh yeah, absolutely. It, I I really enjoyed this episode. It also made me have more sympathy for the mom. Yes. Because we first see her and she's like, cra she seems crazy, but it's like, no, this is a woman who she's had abused. her life ripped away from her and right. was treated like shit. Like, right. um, I did, I did feel like I had sympathy for Andrew I did for the first time I did in a major way. Also, you kind of got to see 
where the lobster came from and like, yes. you know what I mean? Like there were definitely moments or even just him visiting the Philippines was a weird, I, there were some corny things. Um, I had started listening to a podcast by Vanity Fair. Actually, yeah. they do a recap every week and the podcast is pretty good. I think if you just look up Vanity Fair, Versace, it'll pop up. Um, but they do a way more in-depth recap if you're interested. And then they also interview um, people from the show, yeah, which is interesting. And they were, they liked the episode also, but they were pointing out some things that uh, made me laugh about how they're kind of really hammering home the American dream and the yeah. parallels between Versace and Kunanen. Yes. Like, even when it doesn't like, really fit. Like, oh, see, his parents, his mom was very supportive. And like, Which actually, I mean, according to the Vanity Fair article I read, wasn't necessarily, I think it was the Vanity Fair. I read a couple of different articles after, but one article at least stated that that wasn't necessarily true, that she wasn't, she wasn't not supportive of right. young Gianni Versace, but it wasn't as, you know, ham-fisted like they showed it. It's very, it, there's ham-fisted elements to this episode, even though overall I did like some of the moments yeah. in it and I feel like it did explain Andrew and I didn't really know a lot about his childhood yeah so it was good to um kind of see that and it is you know you do have empathy for you know um him in this for his childhood you know he grows up in San Diego he's at this prestigious high school and elementary school that he goes to surrounded by rich kids right. and that's something that I feel like a lot of people um, you know, can empathize with in America, just feeling less than financially right. and feeling like, you know, the key to life is to have material success. Well, and it was sort of, I can't remember who said it. I think it might've been said in some other episode, maybe by the, um, Terry Sweeney character yeah. where it's like, you want it all, but you don't want to work for it. And I feel like this is where we see Andrew thinking he deserves it. And his dad basically said, you're special, you know, you deserve everything, but it's like, no, but you have to work. Like his dad seemed like a hard worker actually who right. like, but his dad, his, his bullshit was based on something like his dad was a, a smooth talker and bullshitter too. Right. I think he, he kind of got the thing I thought was like the most abusive in this episode was when he lied to them about getting the job, about not getting the job. Oh, that, that moment was like really fucked up thing to do. Like those are the kind of, moments and I'll just be like like when I talk about my abusive childhood it's never like the things that most people freak out about like the very obviously things yeah. it's like these subtle things that they do that fuck with you yep. I feel like that are the most that emotional up. abuse like, that, yeah that, that lasts with you right I mean that's like gaslighting is so overused now right but that's the kind of stuff where they're always keeping you off kilter on your toes. On your toes, and you never know what the right answer is. Right. It's a fucked up position to be in. So I just felt like, ugh. Right. I hated that moment. It was so horrible. Yeah. And even in that moment, I was like, myself, I was like, well, is he telling the truth or lying? Which one is true? I couldn't tell. Do you know what I mean? Like, I didn't know. I was like, did he get the job or was he continuing the lie? Like, so I thought that was a really good moment to show how Andrew probably also doesn't know what the difference between truth and lies are right. in a way. Right. And I, I I thought also, you know, at the end of the episode, uh, or by the end of the episode, Andrew, you know, has had his entire life sort of has been a lie at this point, or his father's life has been a lie to him. He's had like, you know, everything has been exposed. His dad 
is a fraud suddenly. And Andrew travels to Manila to go track down his dad where he's escaped to to avoid going to jail for doing these shady deals. Um, And at that point, he has sold their house from out from under them. He's left his family with nothing. So he goes to see his dad, who's living in um, what Andrew Cunanan actually described as squalor. Um, and it's like he sees this, you know, everything he thought he knew about his father was a lie, basically. But instead of, um, one of the articles I read put it like, instead of learning from that situation and growing from that situation or accepting that that is something, I mean, which is like a tall, that takes a lot of emotional sort of maturity to like learn and grow from that situation, especially when you're like 18 years old, like, and you've been traumatized by this situation. But he immediately goes into, I'm just going to lie about it and pretend it never happened. Well, and you can also see that some of his lies are actually based on truth. Right. Like things that I thought were all lies that your father was a a successful stockbroker and did it. You know what I mean? That he was for a moment. A lot of that stuff was based on truth. Right. So it's like, He's not as big of a liar on some issues as he is others, but you can see how it all gets muddied. Yeah. So I did I did like the episode. I did too. I thought I it was it. Uh, good and also kind of a standalone almost in a way. Like yeah. had like a real insular story going on. Yeah. And um, I think it's we also saw his friend, the woman. Right. We kind of saw how they met and sort of bonded. And that was embellished too. I read that that they didn't necessarily meet like that, but right. it was. But they for knew each other from purposes. high school. Yes. Right. So I liked it. Like Desi said, I do believe it was a could have been a standalone episode, just a story. Right. As it was, uh, very. I think a lot of the themes are still really relevant today. Yeah. Um, just living in like a capitalist society. Or can you even imagine like Andrew in the age of social media? Like what he would have done. Oh, I know exactly who he yeah. would have been. He would have been a Snapchat or a Instagram star. Well, creating a whole persona. Right. Like, but people do that all the time. I know right. people like that. Or, you know, I've seen people like that in my life, especially living in Los Angeles. Right. Where, no, I know who he would have been, but what right. he would have done with that. Oh, yeah. I mean. He could have. That knows? might have given him something. Right. Even though it's totally hollow ultimately right. but yeah maybe that's what's that. keeping um what's that guy's name logan paul oh from right. going on a serial killing spree maybe he should, he should me. he should go on a <laughs> suicide himself spree <laughs> sorry someone tweeted something that made me laugh where they were like i just found logan paul's body hanging in the forest but i didn't film it or something like that. jesus and i was like that's dark that's so dark yeah. even I noticed. <laughs> but like that's the kind of I feel like that's like a similar kind of mental Right. A lot of these narcissistic yes. sociopath, borderline sociopaths, they have this outlet now. It's all about crime. I don't know if it's good or bad. Like I don't know that it's necessarily keeping people from murder. It's bad for us because we have to see them, whereas <laughs> normally we wouldn't know about them until they killed somebody. I don't know that it's necessarily all of them would end up murderers, yeah. but it's like, yeah, it's giving them this outlet that they wouldn't have had 20 years and ago. And that's our hot take on it. Yeah. That's the hot take of the Follow show. Follow us on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> 
so. Well, um, it's kind of interesting. I, I, I just realized this story, um, sometimes when I'm trying to figure out what I want to do, I'll look, uh, I'll look up online sort of what's an anniversary that's coming up this yeah. month or whatever to tie right. it into something that happened. Uh, and that's what I did this month. And it actually was a story I had been wanting to do for a while. Yeah. And now that we're talking about Andrew Kanan, I do feel like there's some parallels there between these two people I'm going to talk about today. So uh, when I was looking to see what anniversary um, there was this month or this week even, there was one that happened on March 17th. So uh, yesterday, St. Patrick's Day, uh, was the anniversary of this crime I'm going to talk about today. And that crime is the club kid killing do you guys know this? <laughs> like you're going to answer. I know so it's it. the murder of Angel Melendez, who was a famous club, club kid. And he was murdered by two other club kids, Robert D. Freeze Riggs, and sort of the founder and ringleader of the whole thing, Michael Alec. Uh, if you don't know, the club kids were kind of a group of New York City party people. They actually went from like the late 80s all the way into the late 90s. So if you don't know about them in particular, you might have seen the movie called Party Monster, which starred Macaulay Culkin, and he played Alec. And that's based on the book Disco Bloodbath, which is an amazing title, by the way. And that book is by James St. James, who you might know because he is kind of around still. Who Rachel uh, has met. And has a good story about James St. James. Oh, are you talking about yourself? Myself. I was like, who's Rachel? I'm sorry. I'm speaking <laughs> to my third I was like, Rachel who? <laughs> um, well, he's also been like a, he's been on RuPaul's Drag Race and he's yes. been a judge on Top around. Model. Yeah, he's, he's still, everywhere. He's in, he's in that world of wonder. Is that what it's called? That like media company that has like a website. Um, I, I don't know. That. Do you want to tell your story now? I'll tell it right now. Okay. Um, uh, coincidentally enough, it involves Frederick, who I mentioned at the top of the show. Okay. So, well, yeah. I mean, I can see. Yeah. So Frederick and I, this was like two years ago. We were at a drag show, and thank God I looked cute uh, when I met him. Oh, my God. I looked so cute that night. Uh, Frederick did my makeup in full Susie Sue oh, drag. Yeah. Oh, great. And we were both, and he was dressed... I forget who he was dressed as, uh, but he was Frederick was in drag, and he looked amazing. So we're at this show, and we're at the bar trying to get some Coca-Colas, you know, because yeah. neither of us drink. And Frederick, yeah. goes, <laughs> Frederick goes, that's James St. James. And I look over, I'm like, oh, my God. And I totally, like, was fangirling out for a second because right. I, I love this guy. <laughs> and all of a sudden, James St. James turns to Frederick and goes, hi, Michelle. Like, he thought he knew Frederick. Right was this girl Michelle, I guess. And he's like, hi, Michelle. Hi, darling. Look, can you get me a da-da-da-da-da? Thanks so much. And Frederick's like, sure. Just pretends to be Michelle. And uh, then we got to take a picture with him later. Aw. that's my story. It was a very... uh, Where were you? At like a drag show? Yeah, at a drag uh show in Hollywood. Okay. That's it. So that's James St. James. It was very exciting (laughs) for me. That's all I have to say about that. Um, He's quite a personality. He looked fabulous that uh, night. So let's just get into a little bit about Michael Alex's background. And this is where you'll kind of see some similarities between him and uh, Andrew. Uh, he was born in Indiana, April 29th, 1966. He also comes from a family that was kind of fucked up. And his parents got divorced when he was really young at four years old. He was an a, a straight-A student. He graduated in the top 8% of his class, so he was very smart, but he was also gay, 
and like growing up gay in the Midwest can't be pretty, can't be an easy situation. Like Andrew probably had it a little bit more easier being in Southern California. So he was bullied um, because of that. And when he graduated uh, high school in 1984, he wanted to move to a less conservative area and he um, went to Fordham University in New York City on a scholarship. Uh, after he was there for a while, he eventually, uh, transferred to FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology. And, uh, it was there that he met the boyfriend of artist Keith Haring. And that's sort of how he got sort of into the whole scene of the New York City nightlife kind of scene. He eventually dropped out of school and he began working at Danceteria as a busboy. Which is where Madonna worked. Exactly. I have that in my notes, Rachel. (laughs) Everyone who knows me knows I'm the biggest Madonna stand. I mean, Danceteria is the legendary, uh, you know, dance club from that period in the 80s. Yes. In the early 80s, maybe late 70s. Did it start? I can't remember. It was closed by the end of the 80s, but it was a legendary dance club. A lot of people performed there and got their start there, whatever. So um, while he was working at Danceteria, he really started kind of taking, he, he was smart, like I said. So he really started like looking at what makes a successful dance club. What's the business like? How do you, and he wanted to become a party promoter basically. Yeah. So he was like taking it all in and figuring out and what his move to was going to be. Yeah, definitely. So he kind of started throwing these parties that were super memorable and it really sort of helped him rise on this party scene. Um, it was during this period, which is in the late 80s, that he kind of created the idea of club kids. Club kids were really flamboyant personas. They all went out dressed in these wild costumes. They usually had like names, like, you know, James St. James. <laughs> That's not his real names. It's kind of draggy in a way. It's like extreme avant-garde drag. Well, someone described it. I think James St. James actually described it as part drag, part clown, part infantilism. And that is true. There yes. was a lot of like, baby elements to to things like pacifiers and that also had to do with like drugs <laughs> the drugs they were taking to <laughs> and lollipops and like kind of childish personas bright a lot colors. of the times bright colors uh yeah some of the famous club kids that you might know um are Amanda Lepore yes. is one of them I don't know there's like Richie Rich, Ernie Glam, my favorite, Jenny Talia. Yes, Jenny Talia. Uh, and RuPaul might have been somewhat kind of involved in that, but I don't think he was ever a club kid. Uh, but he was mentioned a lot. So I don't know if it's people who just don't know. They're like, he must have been in that too. But he probably was like at some of those I'm parties sure for he sure. Was. Right. The club kids became like a really big thing in New York. By the way, I lived in New York at this period and I was fascinated by them i knew people who were going to these parties and i eventually went to some later really like i was sneaking into the city probably from like the age of 12 i would go into manhattan wow and go out to bars and like whatever wow. like so I, I mean i wasn't like a drug user or like in that i wasn't a club kid but i would go to like disco 2000 and like all of these sort of uh, yeah. parties uh regularly i have a story i'll tell in a second they were a big media presence too. Like they were in magazines like Time and People. They were on like all of the daytime talk shows, Geraldo Donahue, Joan Rivers show. People use GIFs a lot on Twitter or meme. Like they're, one of their talk show appearances from like Phil Donahue show is like a big meme. Like so-and-so just wants to party all day. Oh God, yeah, yeah. And there was also something with like Pickle Surprise. Did you ever see that? <laughs> we should post it. It's like okay. there's all these weird random like things from that period. 
so Michael really became famous. Like it's hard to imagine that he was so famous during this period, but he really was like this personality. He was an it guy. He was was the one who would go on a lot of these uh, talk shows and he would kind of go on looking like boy George. He had like a really snarky, sarcastic persona. So they loved having him on. Uh, and he was always on to defend this terrible lifestyle that they were all promoting. Because conservatives also kind of jumped on the bandwagon of hating these druggy, weirdo, freak teens. Homosexuals. And like, yeah, homosexuals. You know, it's that period of time. Uh, and he was also sort of, in New York, he revitalized this club scene that had basically started dying down when Dan- by the time Danceteria closed. So it was like these remnants from the 70s. And now in the early 90s, it was like sort of this new yeah. thing happening after sort of a dead period for a while. Um, at some point in 1988, he was hired by the owner of The Limelight, a, a man named Peter Gatian, who was like a really wealthy club owner. And I'm going to get a little bit more into him later. Uh, but it was like the best job you could get <laughs> as a yeah. club promoter is working for him. Um, at some point, Gation's club empire employed like 900 people. So it was really big. In addition to the limelight, he also owned all of these clubs. And I've been to all of them. Club USA, the Palladium and Tunnel. They were all the biggest clubs in New York at that time. So as I said before, uh, these these parties that he would throw were like havens for gay kids, drag queens. People were wearing costumes like fairy wings, chicken suits. I mean, <laughs> it was really like insane. Uh, he would also throw these impromptu parties that were kind of like early versions of flash mobs where they would just show up in a subway car at a random McDonald's. So these club kids were like everywhere in New York City. And it was just like this crazy, I don't even know what to call it. Like, it's like an art installation. Yeah. I mean, it was very Andy Warhol factory kind of thing but they were out like it wasn't at some apartment where the regular people didn't get to see them right people would see them they would just show up and everyday people were surrounded by these kids in the beginning they were completely anti-drug he said it was a creative positive thing come to new york and join our group where you'll be celebrated for the thing that makes you kooky or an outcast in your hometown yeah so that was sort of the genesis of it it Um, wasn't this hoity-toity exclusive right and i don't think it was that necessarily straight edge but the drug culture wasn't the main thing it was mm-hmm. like come here let your freak flag fly free or whatever <laughs> so one of the people who kind of started writing about these kids was um, a village voice columnist named michael musto yes and he's like a he worked for the village voice for a really long time and he was kind of like the gossip columnist mm-hmm. and i used to read him religiously yeah. when i was that age and he would talk a lot about the stories and sort of their bad the bad behaviors that would start coming out not necessarily drug related or anything criminal but just like people peeing on club go- glower club goers goers glowers <laughs> they were glowing fuck you uh peeing in their drinks or peeing on them there was some story that michael himself had peed on a bartender like from above in the rafters not everyone's into that right uh knocking people to the ground. I mean, just like all this stuff. Now I'm going to tell you my story since it's sort of related to doing something to someone below you. Desi has a story that's related to pee, everyone. It's not P 
pee, but I will tell you, I went to Limelight one time. I can't remember why. It might have been a KMFDM concert. Of course it was. Right. Okay. Below me. So the Limelight had levels, but it was all open. So if you were at the stage, you could be in these levels. I, yeah. I don't remember how many floors it was. I was standing on a level and below me was Joey Ramone. I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, this is like one of my best stories. At some point, and this is like an infantil, anti- infantilism type thing. I had a lollipop. Okay, <laughs> I wasn't even on drugs, but that was like the best I could do. I probably was dressed like Hot Baby Jane, <laughs> like from what happened to Baby it. Jane. Uh, at some point, someone was like Joey Ramone. Look, look, it's Joey Ramone below you. And I was just, I can't even remember. I honestly don't know if I did this on accident or on purpose, but I dropped my lollipop in his, and it landed in his <laughs> hair. So he had like really long black hair and I just saw the lollipop sticking and he like pulled it out of his hair and then looked up at me and I was like freaked out and I ran. I was like, we have to go like Joey Ramone saw me. So it was like crazy days back oh then. Oh my God. That's my Joey Ramone story. <laughs> And then when he died of cancer shortly after that, I remember feeling really guilty for some reason. Not that I caused his cancer, but I was like, that's my one thing with him when he died. Like, you dropped a lollipop That's his memory of me. Like, yeah, that's my one interaction. And now I'll never be able to say I'm sorry. So it's all about me. Uh, Let's get back to these narcissists. (laughs) Not like me. Um, So as the scene grew, the drug use grew. Uh, Michael was actually arrested several times for drug offenses, had entered rehab, but continued to, you know, go back on drugs when he got out of rehab. Does that sound familiar, Rachel? Sounds you, familiar to me. Do you know any people who have done that? <laughs> um, at some point, even Gation sent him to rehab because this is a big, you know, he had a job. Like, right. It wasn't like he was de facto club guy. Yeah. He actually worked for Gation and was creating all of these huge money-making events. Um, so the drugs he was doing are typical, very big, like ecstasy, Special K, they called it back then. Does it have a yeah. new name now? Ketamine? Or, I mean, it was Special uh, K. Heroin, Coke, ketamine, like I mentioned before, everything basically everything but any kind of hallucinogens were especially big because of all the colorful costumes and the music and da 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 he had a really manic personality which is something that works well for the thing he was doing as a career but the combination of that personality that was probably uh untreated mental illness in some way combined with the drug addiction really started changing his personality he himself said that he was diagnosed with something called histrionic personality disorder but it's actually uh, some people were like yeah you're a fucking crazy jerk but that's actually a real thing yeah, like, yeah. yeah, yeah, I, yeah. it's a real personality uh, according to him it's a very funny my diagnosis if you look it up you only have to have five or seven of the symptoms and I have every single one uh, but he was delighted by this. He said, the doctor said I was the most extreme, extreme case he'd ever seen. Everything has to be completely over the top and exaggerated. And it worked well for my job since I was a promoter. Right. It did. Um, so during this period when he was really heavy into drugs, he met Andre Angel Melendez. And that, uh, Andre was a drug dealer who actually worked for Peter Gation. Michael actually ended up being one of his biggest customers and in that scene that's saying a lot like (laughs) uh so angel was a drug dealer but then he also kind of got into this club kid kid scene as well and became personal friends with michael and all of his you know cohorts so he was working for peter gation and selling drugs at all of these clubs 
Um, his signature look was that he wore these huge angel feathers. I don't, we could probably post some pictures of him, but they were enormous, like feather wings or whatever. At this point in time, uh, the limelight began to come under federal investigation because, uh, they were investigating Peter Gation for being in sort of part of the drug dealing scene at the yeah. club. He was actually like part of it, not just having people sell drugs. He was like making money off of it right. too. So he was under federal investi- investigation. It was at this time that uh, Melendez got fired by Peter Gation because he was trying to like, like cover everything club. up. Well, he basically fired all these drug dealers yeah. who was sort of paying to be there and sell drugs. Uh, and then it was at that point that Melendez moved into Alec, uh, Alex um, Riverbank West, or Riverbank West apartment. Now, someone referred to this, and I loved it, so I'm going to say it here, and I think it might have been a Rolling Stone article I read. Uh, It was when Melendez moved to this apartment with Alec on March 17th, 1996, that the Club Kid movement had what this uh, writer described as their Altamont moment. Oh, that's... (laughs) It's so good. You know, my dad was at Altamont. Oh, he was? Yes. We'll, we'll, We'll save that for another episode. Okay. Uh, I want to do an Altamont episode, yeah. actually. So we'll get, we we'll get some, we'll uh, we'll get some uh, Gary Fisher quotes for that okay. episode. <laughs> beauty should be good for you. And that's why we're excited to tell you about Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter is a clean makeup and skincare brand that started in 2013, disrupting the beauty industry by shedding the light on the need for stronger ingredient regulations in the personal care products that we use daily. Today, Beauty Counter is the leading clean beauty brand creating innovative and high-performing products that are safer and cleaner than even their like-minded competitors. So what do we mean by clean? Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in Beauty Counter's formulations. They call this their never list. You can learn more at beautycounter.com, where you're also going to want to check out their incredible products. Best of all, if you're a new customer and you order through March 15th, you'll get free shipping on your order of $100 or more when you use the code HOLLYWOOD. Once again, to get free shipping on your order of $100 or more, go to beautycounter.com and use the code HOLLYWOOD. As most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy, getting out of it is hard, especially if your credit score isn't great. Thankfully, now there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just your credit score and offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high-interest credit card debt. I know firsthand that there's nothing more frustrating than trying to pay something down and your payments are pretty much just paying off the interest. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They believe in you. The best part? Once the loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next business day. Over 400,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards or meet their financial goals. So free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. See why Upstart is top-ranked in their category with a 4.9 out of 5 rating on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com Hollywood to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash Hollywood. So um, Sunday, March 17th, 1996, Melendez was killed by Alec and Alec's roommate, Robert D. Freeze Riggs, uh, in this apartment. Both of the guys and possibly Angel, I don't know, were 
on heroin, ketamine, cocaine, cocaine, and rohypnol. Roofies. Yeah. So they were fucked up. Yeah. Um, It was at that point when Alec and Angel got into an argument about a delinquent drug debt. So this started by basically two druggies fighting over owed money. Right. Right. I mean, I'm sure that's pretty typical. There's a lot of conflicting stories, so I'm going to just kind of go through them all. Um, according to statements by, by Alex, Alec and Riggs, um, the confrontation at some point became violent. And when Melendez had uh, Alec sort of, he was beating the shit out of Alec, I guess, or hitting him or had him down. That was when Alec uh, cried out for help and Riggs came in and hit Melendez on the head with a hammer uh, until he went down. After Melendez went down, Alec apparently smothered him either with a pillowcase or a sweatshirt, depending on which story you believe. And then uh, there's this really crazy rumor. I'll get into it later. He supposedly poured a cleaner or a chemical into his mouth and wrapped duct tape around his mouth. Uh, While he was still alive? That's sort of not really known. Okay. at that point, they had his corpse in a bathtub, and they covered it with ice. Uh, this detail is insanely 90s to me. They sprayed it with Calvin Klein Eternity to <laughs> stop the smell. Jesus. I mean, this is like the drug addict move of all time. Right. right. And then they continued to party for eight to nine days in this eight apartment with people coming over and just like they had shut off this bathroom uh from people being used toilets broken while the while the body is like rotting in the tub okay um at that point they kind of decided while the coven client eternity isn't working we need to figure out what we're gonna do according to riggs they went to macy's and they bought two chef knights knives and a cleaver uh they dismembered melendez's body they cut off his legs put that in a bag they wrapped they cut off his head with the chef's knife and a cleaver they cut they put everything in separate garbage bags including his head they decapitated him um and then they stuffed some stuff into garbage bags and some stuff i guess into boxes depending on the size uh afterwards he and riggs threw the box into the hudson river um all the different boxes and bags and i guess some of it was in a duffel bag too there's some different sort of things like Riggs, Riggs, according to Riggs, they, they, they put the body into a yellow cab and then took it to the West Side Highway around 25th Street. Uh, and once the taxi drove off, they threw it into the river. But Alec actually said that the cab driver actually helped them, but that was never proven at all. Right. There was the um, chemical I mentioned. That was one of the first rumors I remember hearing that they injected him with Drano. And that was how he died. But according to Alec, they had used the Drano to cover up the smell at some point. But he's not really admitting to the fact that he might have put it in the mouth. But I don't know if that was to also get rid of the smell, like in some demented way, like we pour it down his throat, it won't smell. Now, after, after the murder happened, no one knew the murder happened, first of all. He was, he disappeared. Right. right? So he's disappeared. Uh... Alex started telling people, anyone that he would listen to him, that him and Riggs murdered Angel Melendez. But people, because of his personality, they thought this was just another one of his fantastical lies. Right. Uh, and like he was making fun of it. Like that's sort of how demented these people were. Like you would joke about murder as if it's like, oh yeah, I killed him. Like 
and people would laugh their asses off. Well, it's like, so absurd. It's such an absurd thing Right, to and say. at this point, they are all sort of narcissistic, narcissistic drug addicts who just they think everything's fucking funny and nothing is serious and like do you know what I mean like yeah. oh you killed him that's hilarious um so according to Michael Musto who was following this story very carefully obviously by the time Alex sent out a party invite joking about the murder a lot of people wanted to kill him uh Michael so, yeah so he was going so far as sending out party invites like joking about the murder and probably I don't I didn't see this but I could picture him even making a party like the Angel Melendez murder murder party party or whatever like dress up as Angel the mainstream uh media finally started covering this murder after the victim's brother and father were turning to them sort of begging for help because people weren't people didn't really care and because there was no body yet there was nothing really to prove this is a drug addict he could have gone anywhere he could have you know what I mean like uh whatever on April 26, 1996, Musto officially reported rumors of Alex's uh, involvement in Melendez's death in a blind item in the Village Voice. Uh, it included details of the murder, um, and other people started publishing things too, including the New York Post. And page there still six. wasn't a body yet. No, no body. So it was starting to get a little bit of press. In September of 1996, so this is months later. Yeah. Uh, the police had still not question, even questioned Alec in a serious way about the murder. They had questioned him about Peter Gation, uh, the investigation that yes. was going on with him. And they were really trying to get Alec to testify against Peter Gation. So I, 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 a lot of people speculate that they weren't even caring about the murder because the Peter Gation thing was the thing they really wanted Alec to kind of get on board with. Right. Um, a lot of people started believing at that point that Alec would get away with murdering Melendez just because the police were sort of not doing anything. James St. James actually recounted uh, that Melendez's brothers were all baffled with the callous indifference the police were showing the case, and even the people who claimed to be Melendez's friends didn't seem to give a fuck at yeah. that point. And coincident, a coincidental thing happened on Friday, September 8th, 1996. A dismembered body was fished out of the Harlem River uh, and it was found by a homeless woman, and that sparked police to been to begin investigating the Angel Melendez case. They initially thought it was his body, but it just happened to be a coincidence, another dismembered another body. Dismembered. But it kind of got them to think, oh, wait, we should be investigating this, this case. A police officer in Staten Island uh, saw some of the coverage of that body that was found, and he was like, oh, wait a minute, we found a John Doe body, uh, in Staten Island at a place called Miller Field. Pieces of uh, human remains had washed up on the shores of Staten Island. In the film Glory Days, which is a documentary that was on Netflix, I'm not sure if it still is, uh, the police say that the group of children at the beach on Miller Field discovered no. uh, the parts of his body. Yeah, There are boxes containing the remains of... Uh, Andre Angel Melendez, they come to find out later. Uh, a tropical storm had actually helped propel the the box up on the shore. That's how it kind of happened. Wow. They had to use, uh, the reason they didn't initially think it was him was because they initially thought it was an Asian male, uh, but they used dental record, records to identify the body. And on November 2nd, 1996, they positively identified the mutilated corpse as Melendez. Um, and a lot of the details of the rumors about how he was killed were confirmed by the fact that it was like body parts chopped up and yeah. uh, whatever. 
Um, at that point, Alec fled New York, and in that November, like at the end of uh, shortly after the body was found, he was located in a motel room that he was renting with a drug dealer boyfriend named Brian in Tom's River, New Jersey. He was arrested, and uh, Riggs was arrested as well. So shortly after the arrest, Riggs confessed to police, uh, and this is his actual words on Sunday. In March, I was home, and Michael, Alec, and Angel Melendez were loudly arguing and getting louder. I opened the room and started towards the other bedroom, at which point Michael was yelling, help me, get him off me. Angel started shaking him violently and banging him against the wall. He was yelling, you better get my money or I'll break your neck. I grabbed the hammer and hit Angel over the head. According to Riggs, he hit Melendez three times on the head with a hammer. Then Alec grabbed a Alec grabbed a pillow and tried to smother him. When Melendez was unconscious, Riggs went to the other room, and when he returned, he noticed a broken syringe on the floor. Riggs claimed that Alec was pouring some cleaner or chemical into Melendez's mouth and then duct taping it, and then Riggs helped him with that. Alec always dis disputes this and says that the uh, Drano and the hypodermic needle was something that was in Disco Bloodbath and Party Monster, like created to make a dramatic film and book. Alec insisted that he and Riggs killed Melendez in self-defense and disposed the body in a kind of panic after yeah. the murder. I don't even doubt that any of this is true or not true. Like, yeah. I'm sure it's a fucking mess and it's drug addict memory. Like, they were drugged when they fucking did this. So who the hell knows what really happened in a way? There was, as I said before, he was interviewed in August of 1996 related to Peter Gation. And it was a secretly taped conversation with... Um, Melendez's brother, Johnny, between uh, Alec and Johnny Melendez, Angel's brother. And they were, in that conversation, Alec started uh, hinting that Riggs killed Melendez for Gation because Peter was in trouble for drugs and Angel knew everything and was threatening to go to uh, the police or to right. the FBI or, or the federal government, whoever is investigating this. Um, now, prosecutors, as I said before, were hesitant to charge him because they thought they might need him to testify against Peter Gation, but they eventually offered Alec and Riggs a plea deal, and they got a sentence of 10 to 20 years if they accepted the lesser charge of manslaughter. October 1st, 1997, both pleaded guilty and were sentenced to 10 to 20 years. Uh, they never ended up testifying for Gation because they were convicted felons at that point, right. and it, whatever, we all know how that goes. Uh, while in prison, Alec told journalist Michael Musto, I know why I blabbed. I must have wanted someone to stop me. I was spinning out of control. It's like the old saying, why do you have to get attention around here? Kill somebody? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, there was another interview with Michael after he was released from prison, and he kind of goes into a, um, a few more details. Um, he claims that Freeze, one thing that people always get wrong is that they, they say that Freeze hit uh, Angel with the metal part of the hammer and the, that blood was splurting everywhere and whatever. But he said that's not what happened. He was holding the claw and hitting him with the wooden handle. So I he, think, it I think, wasn't the metal part. Well, that's according to Alec. Right. And I feel like he feels that that makes it seem less intentional. Like I was just trying to stop him. I hit him with the wood. Obviously, if you right. hit someone with the claw of a hammer, they're going to die. They're going to die probably. So. He, I feel like a lot of people think he's just saying that as a, as a way to sort of say it. The intent was not it was murder. Self-defense. It was self-defense. Um, he also blames a lot on their addictions. He said we were junkies and calling the authorities. That's just not something junkies do. I was going to say, right. like, I mean, that part of it, like whether it was self-defense or not, 
even if it was complete self-defense and they're innocent, you know, of murder. Right. You When you're a drug addict, no matter what's going on in your life, you do not call the cops. Right. I mean, I buy that too. Like, I mean, I could. He also has bosses under investigation. They have thousands of employees. Like the last thing they need to do is to have this drug addicted murder thing happen. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying from my own perspective, Uh, like that makes total sense to me. And obviously, a a uh, I think someone said at some point to him, a person's life is worth more than a thousand jobs. Like, duh, right? Right. His 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 point of view though is he was already dead. There's nothing we could do about it. Even though it was self-defense, we decided to cover it up. And honestly, like, I can see covering up a murder that's unintentional. <laughs> you're freaking out. Well, like, that's what I'm right, saying. Yeah. It's like when you're addicted to drugs, it's not just that you're... Even when you're not addicted to drugs, people cover up things that were unintentional when they unintentionally kill someone because you panic. Like, obviously, he's like, would I make the same decision now? No, I would do the right thing, of course, whatever. Angel was friends with all of her friends. So he was basically saying, like, we knew we would eventually be caught because everyone's asking us, where's Angel? How could you have, you know? So it was kind of like, he did what he did. Right. Uh, he tried to have it both ways. Like, he said, I would say, matter of factly, we killed Angel. Almost like to confess and get it off his chest. But everyone was like, ha, 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 ha. Like, so his, he was doing this weird kind of psychological thing where he would confess, but no one would believe him and he wouldn't go, no, I really killed him. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, it was like this weird thing. Uh, and he said about his circle with that kind of shit, like how they kind of got away with that. We all have histrionic personality disorder. We all love to gossip and tell the most outrageous stories to each other. And each time we tell a story, it gets bigger. We're not like normal people. It's not soccer moms here. So he went to prison. Uh, he didn't have like a great time in prison. He was placed in solitary confinement a lot because he was addicted to heroin when he went in. Yeah. And when you, uh, you know, get caught using heroin, they'll put you in solitary to keep you away from it, basically. His longtime mentor, James St. James, at some point began a blog entitled Phone Calls from a Felon, where they would he would blog transcripts of the conversations he would have with Alec yeah. in prison. I never read that. At some point, Alec did stop the phone calls because he said, people think I'm having a grand old time or that I'm trying to exploit my situation. Uh, so I guess that was a good call because it does look really bad. Uh, He became eligible for parole in 2006. At his first parole request, it was denied, uh, and it was reportedly parole officers had watched the film Party Monster and kind of were like, like, fuck this this shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He was denied again in 2008. uh, And at some point he said, I I really identify with the character of Raskolnikov from Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. I mean, he has like illusions of grandeur. In, ni- in 2009, while in prison, he finally stopped using drugs and and was sober. I'll get into whether or not that sobriety is still around. Uh, one sort of thing that's relevant to Rachel and Mai's interest, Twitter. Uh, a year before he was released in 2014, he had a friend tweeting for him, like set up a Twitter account that. and tweeting for him. Uh, some of his tweets were like observation about daytime TV and pop culture. How did Justin Bieber get his hair to stand up like that? Why was everyone so mean to Madonna? Like all of this kind of stuff. So he's like basically the same sort of empty, like whatever pop culture obsessed person that he was back then, I guess in a way. Uh, and then he'd joke about prison life too. Like I just look adorable in my mess hall whites and my hair net. Cause I guess he worked in the kitchen at, at prison. I kind of actually prefer that than if he would have been 
like so sanctimonious. Right. I mean, I don't really care. Fucking I mean, but you think about the victim's family probably not being. And yeah, why was it. everyone so mean to Madonna? Right. Exactly. That's I like the real that crime. <laughs> um, so as we mentioned before, he he left prison. He finally got paroled in 2014. Riggs got paroled, I think, around the same time. And he was in a New York City that was completely changed. He oh, was in prison yeah. for 17 years. So in the early days of his release, he actually drew up a list of pros and cons about kind of pursuing that life again, about being an attention seeking, yeah. whatever. One of the pros he mentioned was offering a new generation, the example of what club kids once were, an inspiration <laughs> for misfits. Among the cons was by seeking attention, he'd feel like he was perpetuating the idea that he didn't care, that he was a sociopath and it was all a joke. And that I thought it was cool to kill somebody. So he did have a curfew when he was out of prison. When he was on parole, he had an 8 p.m. curfew. And he did various things out of prison. Uh, he was on like a YouTube show. He started selling his art. Uh, but he really wanted to get back in that club scene. Um, also in 2017, he got into a fight with his boyfriend at the time. The police were called. And... Um, I guess Alec was trying to escape on a on a ledge or out of fire escape on the thing, and his boyfriend bit him. No one was arrested. Uh, but a quote from Alec after that uh, incident was, love is a battlefield. So anyways, he really wanted to get back into club promotion, and at some point he was no longer on parole, and he uh, was able to stay out past eight, <laughs> which yeah. he, he needed to do. Um, he also was arrested at some point in 2017 for smoking crystal meth um, in the Bronx somewhere. So he did definitely slip off the he wagon relapsed. once he was out. Uh, accord according to the Daily News, he was arraigned on drug possession and trespassing charges, pleaded guilty uh, in exchange for a conditional discharge. So I don't think he really faced any severe uh, punishment for it. After he had his uh, curfew removed, he started a party at a place called the Rumpus Room, that was definitely sort of trying to um, redo that club kid glory days. Uh, he called it Michael Alex is free from prison, from parole. It's the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning. So he was already kind of monetizing whatever infamy, infamy he had. Yeah. Right. There was a lot of controversy about this. Like people we're calling him a murderer on Facebook. Like, why would anyone go to this? Why would we celebrate a murderer? You're tacky. This is tragic. Right. So it was not like received very well. Uh, the, the backlash was so bad that Alec issued a statement saying that he would um, donate half of his paycheck to a drug treatment center, like half of the proceeds from that party to a drug treatment center. But no one gave a fuck. He still received kind of death threats uh, we're going to kill you. We think you should get the electric chair. And if the state Jesus. didn't do it, we're going to do it. Yeah. So he got a, he got a warm welcome to the world of social media. Uh, <laughs> um, the party actually, the initial party was kind of a bust. Not that many people showed up, but I do think he continued it for a while. I'm not sure if he's still doing it. Musto kind of reattached himself to the story. Um, he, he said, he would definitely be a mother goose to a whole new generation of kids again if he was allowed to. Uh, when Michael first got out, he was hounding me to get together, and although I felt hypocritical avoiding him, I thought he hadn't changed at all. He still seemed delusional, and he blamed me for the Drano quotes. He kept saying that um, I was preventing him from getting a job, not the fact that he murdered and dismembered someone, but the Drano thing. That was like the thing that, that was he thought. What, yeah. right. uh, that led me to think he was totally delusional. Apparently, they 
work together on some independent film afterwards. And Michael then was quoted as saying, giving a sort of more positive spin on him. He's got a million ideas. He's actually kind of a genius. So I don't really know. I mean, Michael Musto is kind of weird. I feel like he can easily be swayed back and forth. And I don't doubt that Michael is one of those people who can convince you. Michael Alec. Yeah. yeah. Oh, right. Sorry. Um, Alec can convince you that, like, I got like all these ideas. Like, he probably does have a lot of fabulous ideas. I mean, obviously, part of the problem is a lot of people don't like him and think he should be in jail for the rest of his life. Um, Michael had this to say, what we did is an awful, awful thing. It's something that I can't even come to grips with fully, but I can understand how people would definitely have misgivings. Uh, it's a small, small part of who I am. When peace, people on Facebook or wherever attack me, I'll usually try to make an attempt to talk to them rationally, and sometimes I meet with them. So it does seem like he's kind of trying. I don't know. It um, sounds like if he was just using drugs uh, as recently as 2017, he should probably um, just be focusing on his recovery. Right. Riggs, as I said, was also paroled. He was actually paroled a little earlier than Michael Alec. I made a mistake there. And he started working for uh, a degree. Uh, I'm going to get to that actually later. Uh, so Michael also says, I can't be anti-drug. I can't. Michael claims to be anti-drug still sometimes. Uh, and that he kind of says, I could be anti-drug and still be around drug users and even sometimes use drugs myself. So it seems like he's a little conflicted with his sobriety. And like you said, you just need to be drug-free. You clearly can't handle it. Like, because he kind of, yeah. I mean, he got busted in 2017. Oh, so as, as I mentioned, Alec, um, Alec's cohort in this martyr, cohort, that's my new word. And he actually went to see uh, CUNY, I think it's called. The, so like a university, a, a public university in New York where he was kind of, um, he wrote a, um, his, whatever, one of his papers was called Robert Riggs, Urban Anthropology and Mass Incarceration. So he kind of was taking on all this uh, college coursework and uh, he started it actually in prison, getting his degree. Uh, and he was accepted into a PhD program in sociology at NYU after he left with a fellowship. Um, according to Alec, Fries has always been really smart in a way that I'm not. I mean, so Riggs definitely seems to have turned his life around. Um, he just, he started taking the college courses in prison, and once he left, he was on that track and no right. longer doing the club kid thing. Um, now, I mentioned before the federal investigation into Peter Gation, so I thought I'd give you like an update on that. He was acquitted of that whole thing. Uh, he was later arrested on tax evasion charges, and he did plead guilty to that in 1999. He was sen sentenced to a $1.6 million fine and a 60-day prison sentence, and eventually he was deported back to Canada, which is where he's from. And then, as I mentioned before, Alec is still trying to do the party thing. He kind of, as I mentioned, kind of can't get over the fact that people are, aren't able to separate the glory of the club kids from the murder, like... It's all that people think about now or associate with the club kids. Um, here's a quote from him. None of us were using drugs to have fun. It wasn't like, oh, let's do a cocaine and go dance. It was more like we need another line of coke to never have to face the truth that we were very self-conscious and uncomfortable in our own skin. Yeah, that's called drug yeah. addiction. <laughs> and the irony is that we were spearheading, spearheading a youth movement where the tagline was love yourself. People asked him, you know, are you going to choose better friends? I mean, one of the people who did come to greet him in prison, um, a reporter was waiting, and he brought a toy hammer that was sort of like a joke. So it was like 
a lot of these people haven't changed. And it's like, Alec, are you going to still associate yourselves with these people, like the bad people? And he said, I have a hard time cutting anybody adrift because I have abandonment issues. So it's one of my big problems. I don't know how to tell someone no. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. So that's sort of the last quote I have from him on the matter, which is kind of horrible because it's like you killed someone and you can't hurt someone's feelings. Like he's a mess. Like I feel like he is not well. Uh, as I mentioned before, there's a ton of media on this. I mentioned the documentary and yeah. the movie Party Monster. Which is um, a fabulous movie if yeah. you haven't seen uh, it. There's tons of television things like American Justice and like all yeah. of those type of Dateline type shows. If you want to search for them on YouTube, there might be some. There's a few books. Um, and there was even a play based on the James St. James or uh, a musical yeah. based on it. Um for some reason I wrote I don't know why I wrote this I said now go listen to Stacey Q's Two of Hearts what? <laughs> I don't know I must have heard it in one of the things I watched like Stacey Q's Two yeah. of Hearts do you know that song? yes That's I like, do I picture that type of music as club kid music where it's just like who is this bitch? like right. she's famous because like we all decided we're just gonna love her shitty pop music like, that song is so shitty and I know people like it's so like shitty that, but, but it kind of has this like oh, nostalgia yeah. factor I'll dance to it but it's so totally. shitty so that's the story. That's basically all I could find. Speaking of where did this bitch come from, um, <laughs> going back to uh, the Versace episode, uh, Andrew Cunanan was dancing to Samantha Fox. Oh, right, in right, this right, one right, scene, right. and I was like, "Yes, Samantha Fox!" I got really excited. Yeah, no, there was that whole era where there's like female pop stars just kind of. I'm all about yeah, it. I like them. They're I love fun. it. They did good. Um, so yeah, that's that. That was great. Oh, good. Yeah. And seriously, Seth Green's performance, just side note in Party Monster. Did he play James A. James? He did. Yeah. He's so fucking good. I mean, Macaulay Culkin's great too, but I, Seth Green, like such a good performance. Yeah, it's good. He's amazing in that movie. Yeah. But, now listen to this two of hearts. It's the, <laughs> it's the demand I make of you. I can't believe Andrew Cunanan hasn't danced to it yet, quite quite honestly. Honestly, I mean, that would on. make sense. Sort of, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm so hungry right now. Me too. That's all I can think of. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's wrap it up. <laughs> well, I just got this note. I just got this um, push notification from Grubhub. And it says, get Burger King delivered for free. Be the king of your couch. Swipe to order. And it's like, you know what? Fuck you, because that is totally a bad decision that I would make right now. Right. I'm thinking. I'm like thinking Burger about stopping at In and Out on the way home. Quite honestly. Okay. Lettuce wrap burger. Okay. Lettuce wrapped. <laughs> when I'm on my deathbed, I'm gonna literally be so pissed at myself for every lettuce wrap fucking burger I've ever eaten in my what life. A waste. It is so disgusting. I'm never full. After also, it's I eat literally them. a whole head of fucking iceberg lettuce. It's like. <laughs> Dude. Have you, I, I was like, dude, just give me two leaves. I don't need a it's whole like, fucking thing. The beef? I don't need two inches of fucking iceberg lettuce to hold a burger. <laughs> and I always end up eating some of the paper. It's- <laughs> always. But you know what's funny about lettuce wrap burgers is that I'm still starving afterwards. That bun really does fill Even you up. Even if I get a double-double. Yeah, I'm starving. I'm still hungry. It's an empty, hollow meal. <laughs> it's a hollow meal. But anyways, yeah. it's not my fault the patriarch exists. <laughs> Desi woke up this morning furious about zoodles, which are zucchini noodles. Listen, I have an opinion about the zoodles. It's not the shape that I miss. I want the fucking pasta. Right. You could put it in a fucking bow tie shape, still zucchini. Like, I'm fine with eating zucchini with 
Alfredo sauce and chicken, but why waste your time making it into a noodle shape? That's what I don't understand. Right. Why waste the time? Just chop up some fucking zucchini and mix it with your pasta sauce and meat or whatever. It's not like, the why? shape. I don't, I don't need, the, need shape. the shape. I would never. I'll eat zucchini with other stuff. It's called a stir fry. Like, <laughs> right. I don't need it in the shape of a, a noodle. It's infuriating. It's insane. Like, fuck that. You think I'm going to get a mandolin and fucking make zucchini? I've noodles? tried every pasta substitute and nothing substitutes. Yeah. It's, Come on. It and the name. Can you imagine being an adult I, I ordering that? Name. Come on. Zoodles. And everyone loves Zoodles oh. who's on a low carb diet. They're huge. They I don't ca- get it. They put it on Instagram. They hashtag it. Fucking it's always keto. On like, come on. <laughs> it's a nightmare. Remember when I was on keto for like eight days? I don't know. It didn't do anything except make me shake oh, right, and feel like I was going to pass shakes, out. Yeah. Yeah. It's bad. It's bad. No more crash diets. No. Okay. okay. Cut to me Bye. next week. Like, I'm on a juice fast again. <laughs> <Yeah>. mm, almond. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.